You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is the final episode in our series on Edmund Hillary in Tenzing Norgay and the conquest of Everest. We have a lot to cover, so let's get going. Last time, we concluded with Hillary and Tenzing reaching the summit of Everest on May 29, 1953, and word of their accomplishment reaching London on June 2nd, the morning of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. It was a dramatic way to reveal the triumph of Tenzing and Hillary and the entire British expedition. Now, the climbing of Everest would prove to be one of the great moments of the 20th century, and what Hillary and Tenzing did reverberates around the world to this very day. And thus, there's a lot to talk about regarding the expedition and the men involved. So for this episode, we will do the following. First, we will talk about the immediate aftermath of the expedition, and do a bit of a post-mortem on the whole thing. Second, we will do a brief overview of some of the people involved in the series. Third, we will cover the rest of the lives of our stars, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. And finally, we will talk about the legacy of this epic climb and Everest itself. And with that, let us get going with the aftermath of the Everest expedition. So with the successful summit of Everest, the expedition would debark the mountain and head back to Kathmandu and then India. Along the way, telegrams and letters and phone calls would flood into the team. This included messages from Queen Elizabeth, Winston Churchill, and many other heads of state. As you can imagine, the team took great satisfaction from the accomplishment. For many of them, they were finishing the work done by others, such as Mallory and Shipton. In Kathmandu and India, the expedition members were greeted as heroes. At the airports of Calcutta, Delhi, and Bombay, tens of thousands of cheering people would welcome the climbers. And the big reason for this was because of Tenzing. He was, after all, one of their own. However, the scrutiny was incredibly intense, and Tenzing was, at times, overwhelmed by it all. In Calcutta, the team would be introduced to India's Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru. I hope I said that right. Nehru was a towering figure in Indian politics at this time, and he would quickly realize that Tenzing needed a mentor as he entered the public spotlight. The result would be a lifelong friendship between the two men, which we will discuss later. From India, the team would head off to England, and when I say the team, I mean the British and the New Zealanders, plus Tenzing and his family. The rest of the Sherpas were paid off and headed home, their job now done. The trip to England would be a dazzling success. Ed Hillary was praised for his good-natured and friendly attitude, and Tenzing dazzled everyone with his charm and smile, as always. Their contrasting appearance was a big hit as well. 
James Morris, the correspondent for the Times in London, had been with the expedition in Nepal. He would liken Hillary to a giraffe, intending to a Himalayan fashion model. Again, the press and the public loved it all. Another source of goodwill was Tenzing's wife, Ang Langmu, and his two daughters. They were polite and exotic and adorable. The press ate up the personal stories of both Hillary and Tenzing. One was a simple beekeeper, the other the son of a yak herder. They had worked hard and been rewarded with greatness. Tenzing's story, in particular, resonated with working people. He was a man who just wanted to make a better life for him and his family and to be able to buy his own home. Who couldn't relate to that? The culmination of the London trip would be a celebration at Buckingham Palace, where Queen Elizabeth would knight Ed Hillary and John Hunt. Tenzing was awarded the George Medal, which was given to non-citizens for outstanding service to Britain. Now, the knighthood for Hillary was sort of amusing, because Hillary had a disdain for the British class system, and lords and ladies and all that formal stuff. He, of course, didn't refuse it, but he often downplayed the title. As for Tenzing, the George Medal was nice, but let's face it, it wasn't a knighthood. Almost immediately after it was announced, people from all corners howled at what was seen as a slight to the Sherpa. It was like Chewbacca not getting a medal at the end of Star Wars. How rude was that? Anyhow, officials pointed out that Tenzing was not a citizen of Great Britain, so what he was given was appropriate. However, there are other honorary titles that could have been conveyed upon Tenzing that were more prestigious. The truth is that some felt that Tenzing didn't appreciate the opportunity he had been given to climb with the British. They remembered his comments about preferring to climb with the Swiss. Others felt that he was basically a baggage holder for Hillary on the climb. Racial and colonial attitudes, no doubt, came into play as well. No matter, as I said, the tour of England would be a great success, and Hillary and Tenzing's popularity would only grow. Now, there are a few other things I want to mention about the aftermath of the expedition. The first item I want to talk about was a question that almost immediately arose after the summit of Everest. And that was, who got to the top of Everest first, Tenzing or Hillary? Now, this was not really an issue with the climbers. When a team got to the summit, they got there together. Tom Stobart, the expedition's cameraman, said it best with this quote, It never entered any climber's head to ask who was first. It just didn't matter. End quote. But that did not stop everyone from asking that question to both the climbers at every stop. To head off any issues, John Hunt got the team together and essentially got them all to say that they had made it there at the same time. In Hillary's account of the expedition, High Adventure, he didn't reveal any further details, but Tenzing would spill the beans in his 1955 autobiography, Man of Everest. He would say that the two men were roped together, about six feet apart, with Hillary in the lead cutting steps when they reached the top of Everest. So, technically, Hillary made it to the summit first by two or three steps. In all honesty, it was a silly debate, and to Hillary and Tenzing and all the climbers involved, there was no issue. They had reached the summit together. End of story. By the way, after so many people pressed him on the subject, Tenzing would quip, If I had known all the fuss it was going to cause, I would have pushed him out of the way and run for it. End quip. Again, it was a non-issue to both men and the climbing community. So, in the aftermath of all of this, I do want to stress that things weren't perfect. And that brings me to the second thing I want to talk about. As we have noted, the Everest expedition had been a massive endeavor, yet it was Hillary and Tenzing who were the heroes. There were some people who were, understandably, a bit resentful at all the attention thrust on the two climbers. This included the European team members, as well as the Sherpas. All of these men had worked their butts off to get a team to the top of Everest, but it was only Hillary and Tenzing that everyone wanted to talk to and put on the cover of their newspapers and magazines. This is understandable. No one cares about the computer designer who helped build the Apollo rockets. 
yet they can't wait to get a photo with Neil Armstrong. In the end, both Hillary and Tenzing handled the situation with grace and dignity. They smiled, they talked up the team, that sort of thing. Now, all of that said, there was some tension surrounding the portrayals of both Hillary and Tenzing in the press. On one hand, the Asian press lauded Tenzing and downplayed Hillary's role in the climb. There were drawings of Tenzing climbing up Everest, carrying Hillary. And there's an old Sherpa joke that Hillary's step, the famed final obstacle before reaching the summit of Everest, was actually called Tenzing's back. This was certainly unfair, and it rankled many people. No one liked to have his or her contributions downplayed. It should be noted that this was not anything Tenzing did, but still, that kind of stuff can sting. Now, on the flip side, there were Western sources that tried to portray Tenzing as a simple mule, just following in the steps of Hillary. As you can imagine, this didn't thrill Tenzing. And there are a couple of incidents that upset the Sherpa, again stoked by journalists angling for a story. After the climb, the expedition's leader, John Hunt, when pressed about Tenzing's climbing skills by an Indian journalist, replied in a snippy fashion, saying, quote, Tenzing was a competent climber within the limits of his experience, end quote. And in the expedition's official report, when talking about climbing Hillary's step for the first time, Ed Hillary had said that when Tenzing reached the top of the rock face, he flopped around like a fish, not exactly the most elegant of portrayals. This kind of thing stung Tenzing. He was a proud man, and these little slights, even if unintentioned, had a way to make him feel as if he was being diminished next to his counterparts. Hunt, for his part, regretted his choice of words and apologized, and Hillary regretted the fish comparison and never brought it up again. It was a shame this was an issue. To a degree, Tenzing was overly sensitive about things said about him, but he had his reasons to be wary. The British had downplayed and even demeaned the Sherpas for decades. From the moment he had joined the expedition, he had been quick to defend himself and his fellow Sherpas from what he felt was unjust criticism. The British, by the way, suffered from this as well. They were sensitive, often too sensitive, to anything they viewed as a slight. No matter, Hillary and Tenzing were hugely popular throughout the world, and their lives were about to be changed in ways that they could never have imagined. Now, before we go into those stories, I do want to spend a little time talking about the expedition itself, just highlighting some of the reasons it had succeeded and some of the big takeaways about the entire enterprise. I'll start by saying that I think the first and biggest reason the Everest expedition of 1953 succeeded was the exceptional planning and execution. This is a nod to Colonel Hunt and the organizing secretary, Charles Wiley. Past expeditions had failed because the climbers making a bid for the summit were asked to do too much. They had to cover too much ground, they were not well rested, they had to use inferior equipment, or were not properly supplied. Hunt was determined not to repeat those mistakes. He had wanted to put more camps on the mountain, more supplies, more climbers, and thus when an attempt was made on the summit, the odds were stacked in the favor of the climbers. And in this, the expedition had succeeded. Also, and this is important, the expedition had a singular purpose, climb Mount Everest. This was not a freewheeling affair, like those conducted by Eric Shipton. This was a laser-focused project, no distractions. Now, all of that said, the summit of Everest was ultimately accomplished because of the people. There were a lot of them, and they did an amazing job. The efforts mapping a way through the Kumbu Icefall by the climbers was first-rate, and the work done by George Lowe and Sherpa Anulu, who spent 11 days above 23,000 feet, or 7,000 meters, making the climb up Lhotse safe for everyone, was epic. And then there was Lowe, Alfred Gregory, and Ang Nima hauling all the gear way up the mountain so Hillary and Tenzing could establish a camp just below the summit. No one succeeds without the work of those men. And speaking of the Sherpas, no expedition in history saw the Sherpas do such extensive and essential work, 
and certainly not at such extreme heights. Over a dozen of them pushed all the way up to the South Call, which is 26,000 feet, or 7,925 meters. Angnema made it almost to 28,000 feet, or 8,535 meters. That's incredible. Outside of Tenzing, no Sherpa had ever done that. Without the Sherpas, the expedition simply does not happen. It's a credit to them and to Tenzing, who had hired and led them. Now, when you talk about people, you always have to come back to Hillary and Tenzing, and what a special team they turned out to be. Hunt saw them as the men to make the climb, and they did it. And let's not forget, Hunt was leading a British expedition, yet he still picked a Sherpa and a Kiwi to make the big climb. It's a credit to him and whoever else was involved in the selection process that they could look beyond ethnicity and nationality and pick the best man for the job, even if neither was actually English by birth. And regarding Hillary and Tenzing, we often note their differences, but I want to stress their similarities because it is many of those qualities that had helped them to succeed. Both Hillary and Tenzing were very driven and competitive. They intensely disliked failure. And the one thing I think that is so often mentioned about them is their endurance. Both men could go on forever. Thus, they pushed each other, and they never had to worry if the other was going to fail. Another thing about the two was that they both came to climbing in a similar fashion. They were comfortable striking out on their own into the wilderness, carrying a heavy load, and taking what nature offered. It was a little different approach toward the outdoors compared to traditional European mountaineering. And that brings up another similarity between the two men. They both had a distrust for the formal and stodgy British establishment. For Tenzing, this is sort of easy to understand, considering the colonial relationship between India and Great Britain. For Hillary, in some ways, it put him at odds with many of the European climbing establishment. He wasn't a career military man, and he certainly did not share a lot of the conservative attitudes held by many of England's upper class at this time. Again, I think this helped Hillary and Tenzing respect, understand, and trust one another, something so critical when the actions of the man on the other end of the rope can mean life or death. No matter, all of this made Hillary and Tenzing an incredible team, and all the team members made the expedition a success. Now, before we move on, I want to mention one other factor about the expedition, and that was luck. The 1953 expedition had its share of issues, but nothing crippling struck them. There were no avalanches like 1922, no one fell off a ledge and died like 1924, and the unpredictable monsoon snows held off, unlike 1936. To do something such as climb Everest, you need an element of luck, and the team got it. Now that wraps up the first section of this episode, and next I want to take some time and talk about some of the people who were so important to the success of Hillary and Tenzing. I won't be covering everyone, but I'll touch on the main individuals, especially if they went on to do something of note. So let's go. The first person I want to mention is John Hunt, the leader of the 1953 expedition. As noted, he was knighted for his role. Hunt would retire from the army in 1956 and go on to serve as the leader of the British Caucasus expedition in 1958. After that, he would serve in a variety of civil and political roles for the British government and work on various endeavors to help young people. He wrote a book about the 1953 expedition as well as an autobiography. He would die in 1998 at the age of 88. One other note about Hunt, his daughter Susan would marry George Lowe, the New Zealander mountaineer from the 1953 expedition. The next person I'll mention is Charles Evans. Evans had, with Tom Bordelin, got within 300 feet, or 90 meters, of the summit of Everest. Evans would accompany Hillary on another Himalayan expedition in 1954, and then lead the first successful climb of Kinchinjunga, the world's third highest peak, in 1955. A surgeon, he would serve as the principal of Bangor University for 26 years. 
He would also be the president of the Alpine Club for four years. For all of this and more, Evans would be knighted in 1969. He would die in 1995 at the age of 77. Now, the next person I'm going to mention did not get much airtime during this series, and that is George Band, who was the youngest member of the 1953 expedition. I mention him because he would become one of the first two men to climb Kinchinjunga in 1955. This was the expedition led by the just-discussed Charles Evans. Band would spend his life involved in climbing, serving as the president of the Alpine Club and the chairman of the Himalayan Trust in the UK, a charity started by Ed Hillary. He would be appointed as an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 2009 and would die in 2011 at the age of 82. The next person on our agenda is Tom Bordelin, who, along with Evans, almost reached the top of Everest. Bordelin, a physicist, had helped develop the closed-circuit oxygen system used on the 1953 expedition. Sadly, he would die in a climbing accident in the Swiss Alps in 1956 at the age of 32. Another of the climbers on the 1953 expedition was Alfred Gregory. And something I never mentioned earlier was that he was a photographer as well as a climber. In the 1950s, he led several climbing expeditions to Asia and South America. He would then work as a photographer for the rest of his life, his work appearing in 35 countries throughout the world. He would publish four books of his photos. Gregory would die in 2010, just three days shy of his 97th birthday. The next person on my list is George Lowe, the master of icecraft. Lowe's work cutting the trail up Lhotse on the 1953 expedition, along with Sherpa and Nulu, is one of the great triumphs of the expedition. Lowe was Hillary's best friend and would serve as his best man at his wedding later in 1953. Also, one thing I never mentioned about him was that he did a lot of the high-altitude camera work for the Everest expedition, and he would go on to create a film about the climb called The Conquest of Everest and be credited as the director. The film would be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary. By the way, you can find the film online, and I put a link to it on our website, explorerspodcast.com. In the years after Everest, Lowe would participate in many climbs in Asia, as well as be a member of the team, along with Ed Hillary, that crossed Antarctica. He would later become an inspector of schools and was one of the founders of the Himalayan Trust UK. He would die in 2013 at the age of 89, the last surviving member of the 1953 expedition. His memoirs would be published that year, on the 60th anniversary of the climb. Wilfred Noyce was another key climber of the Everest expedition. He would continue to climb and be a prolific writer, publishing more than a dozen books on topics ranging from mountaineering to poetry to scholarly articles. He would die in 1962 at the age of 45 in a climbing accident in the Pamirs. The next person on our list is not a climber, but the expedition cameraman, Tom Stobart. Stobart, as you can imagine, is best remembered for shooting the Academy Award-winning nominated film The Conquest of Everest. Stobart would serve as a filmmaker, cameraman, and writer all over the world during his life. In addition to publishing his autobiography, he wrote two books on cooking. He would die in 1980 at the age of 66. Our next person is Dr. Michael Ward. Ward is, to be honest, one of the key reasons all of these expeditions happened. It was Ward who proposed the 1951 expedition, which many never expected to actually get underway. Ward had been a part of that expedition and the 1953 endeavor. He would later become, along with Griffith Pugh, a pioneer in high-altitude medicine, with much of the work conducted on the Silver Hut expedition, which was led by Ed Hillary. Ward wrote numerous books in his life and was made a commander of the Order of the British Empire for his contributions in the sciences and his public service. He died in 2005 at the age of 80. 
And speaking of Griffith Pugh, who was a doctor and physiologist on both the 1952 and 1953 expeditions, he would, as noted, become a pioneer in high-altitude medicine. His work on the Himalayan Scientific and Mountaineering Expedition, commonly called the Silver Hut Expedition, demonstrated that Everest could be climbed without oxygen. He would die in 1994 at the age of 85. The next person I'll mention is Charles Wiley, the expedition secretary and transport officer, who was so critical to the logistics of the Everest endeavor. Wiley would return to the Army and rise to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the 10th Gurkha Rifles. Like several other members of the Everest expedition, he would be appointed as an officer of the Order of the British Empire, this for his charity work in Nepal and India. He died in 2007 at the age of 87. Now, there are a couple of European climbers that I want to mention that were not with the 1953 expedition, but are part of our story. The first is Eric Shipton. We talked a lot about Shipton in the previous episodes, and he was a towering figure in climbing at this time. It was Shipton who had given both Tenzing and Hillary their first shots at climbing on Everest. But as we have seen, his style wasn't attuned to what was needed to climb Everest in 1953, and he had been bumped from the job. Now, despite being heartbroken at losing the lead in the climb, Shipton was absolutely thrilled when Everest was summited, and he was even more thrilled when it was Hillary and Tenzing who had done it. By the way, when word reached Shipton about the successful ascent, he would say, quote, Thank goodness, now we can get on with some proper climbing, end quote. It was a very Eric Shipton thing to say. After all of this, Shipton would continue to work a variety of jobs in Asia, as well as climb. He would receive many honors and awards in his life, including being appointed as an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 1957. In his later years, he would serve as the president of the Alpine Club and continue to travel, supporting himself as a lecturer and a guide. I really can't stress enough what a fascinating man Shipton was. He was a climber and an explorer who simply loved to see what was over the next hill. He wrote extensively about his travels and experiences, and I really encourage you to read more about the guy if he interests you. Shipton would die in 1977 at the age of 69. The next person I'll mention is Swiss mountaineer Raymond Lambert. Lambert and Tenzing would remain friends for the rest of their lives. After Everest, he would continue to climb throughout Europe and Asia, and then, in the early 1960s, take up flying. He would go on to become a celebrated glacial pilot, flying into remote and isolated icy areas. It was a job he continued into his 70s. Tenzing would stay with Lambert and his wife Annette whenever he went to Europe. He would die in 1997 at the age of 82. Now, the next person I want to talk about is really a group, and that is the Sherpas. I talk about the Sherpas as a group because, in all honesty, there's not a ton of information about them that has survived. And that's because, for most of these guys, this was not some sort of epic, world-changing event. It was just another day on the job. When the Sherpas got back to Kathmandu and Darjeeling, or wherever, they went home and celebrated a job well done. But then they just went back to work, doing the exact same thing, month after month, year after year. They worked and lived and died in anonymity. There was Ang Pemba, Sherpa Nulu, Da Tenzing, Da Namgyal, Gambo, and many others. They went back to their lives and carried on with their jobs. And we can't forget, it was a dangerous job. Some of these men would perish in the coming years in avalanches and falls. Now, I do want to mention a couple of the Sherpas, as I was able to find some information about them. This includes Da Tenzing, who was Tenzing's right-hand man on the expedition. Often called the Other Tenzing, he would continue to climb into the 1960s before retiring to Tenboa Monastery in Nepal. He would die in 1985. The other Sherpa I'll mention was Gambu, who was Tenzing's nephew, and the youngest of the Everest Expedition Sherpas at 17. 
Gambu, whose full name was Nawang Gambu, would become quite famous, becoming the first man to summit Everest twice. He did it in 1963 as part of the first American ascent of Everest, and then he would do it again in 1965 with the first Indian ascent. Gambu would spend much of his life working for the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute, which Tenzing helped start. He died in 2011 at the age of 74. Otherwise, the Sherpas would, due to these expeditions, gain an almost mythical status, and for good reason. While the Sherpas started out as porters and guides, beginning with Tenzing, they would also become mountaineers. Today, they are renowned in the climbing community for their toughness, expertise, and experience at high altitudes. In fact, just a couple of months ago, in January of 2021, a team of 10 Nepali Sherpas became the first people to ever summit K2, the second highest mountain in the world, in the winter. These were all indigenous climbers from Nepal, and one of the men even made it without using supplemental oxygen. It is a great example of how Himalayan natives have embraced climbing as their own. They are mountaineers, not just porters and guides for outsiders. So with that, we'll wrap up this part of the episode. Next, we will dive into the lives of Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgate. I will start with Hillary. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In early 1953, Ed Hillary had been a beekeeper from New Zealand who happened to be an exceptionally good climber. Before the year was out, he was one of the most acclaimed men in the world. So after the hoopla of the expedition, Hillary would go on to live a full and colorful life. The first thing he did was get married in September of 1953 to Louise Rose with George Lowe as his best man. Hillary and Louise would have three children, a boy and two girls, Peter, Sarah, and Belinda. Hillary made a show of being a beekeeper after the Everest expedition, but there were just too many distractions. He wrote a book about the climb, did speaking engagements, had product endorsements, all the things you would expect of a big-time celebrity. Ed Hillary had an adventurous spirit, and with his star power, he would get to participate in a lot of expeditions and projects, including climbing 10 other Himalayan peaks over the next decade. Now, there would be several high-profile fairs, some ending well, some not so well. In 1954, he would lead a climb to the Himalayas, with George Lowe and Charles Evans as part of the team. Hillary hoped to take a crack at Makalu, the world's fifth-highest mountain, But things didn't go well. Once in the field, one of the team members, Jim McFarlane, would fall into and get trapped in a crevasse. Hillary, while trying to free McFarlane, would crack several of his own ribs in the process. McFarlane would be forced to spend the night in the crevasse and was not rescued until the next day. He would ultimately lose half of each foot and two fingers due to frostbite. As McFarlane was carried down the mountain, Hillary would lead the rest of the team up Makalu. It was a serious mistake, as Hillary's injuries were more serious than he had realized, the cracked ribs damaging his lung. He would collapse and have to be carried down the mountain. It ended the expedition. This demonstrates some of the hallmark traits of Hillary. Pushing hard, taking chances, that sort of thing. But this time it had ended badly due to some iffy decisions on Hillary's part. In particular, his decision to keep climbing after cracking some ribs was foolhardy. 
Now, Hillary's next enterprise would prove to have a lot more success. That was leading the New Zealand contingent of the Commonwealth Transantarctica Expedition from 1956 to 1958. As the title of the expedition states, this was an endeavor to cross Antarctica. The expedition, led by Vivian Fuchs, was successful. Hillary's job was not to cross the continent. What he was supposed to do was lead a group of tractors toward the South Pole, establishing supply depots along the way to be used by the men coming from the other side of the continent. Hillary's party was not actually supposed to go to the South Pole, but they did so anyways, which kind of honked off the British, who felt Hillary was trying to upstage them. His group would be the first to reach the South Pole overland in 46 years, and only the third ever at the time. It was also the first party to reach the South Pole in land vehicles. Fuchs' team would eventually reach the pole, coming from the opposite side of Antarctica, and then continue on to complete the crossing. It was the first time the continent had ever been traversed. Now, Hillary would have one final big-ticket mountaineering expedition, and this was the Himalayan Scientific and Mountaineering Expedition, more commonly known as the Silver Hut Expedition. This took place in 1960-61 and featured old comrades such as George Lowe, Griffith Pugh, and Michael Ward. The big thrust of the expedition was to conduct experiments regarding acclimatization at high altitudes, and to that, the expedition would be a resounding success. The work they did would become a classic study in high-altitude physiology and is still studied today. That part aside, there are two other things I want to talk about regarding this expedition. The first was a search for the mythical Yeti. Yes, Hillary and his team went looking for the Yeti. At least, that's what they said they were doing. Now, some quick backstory. The legend of the Yeti goes back centuries in the Himalayas, and some of the earliest Everest expeditions had even reported finding huge animal tracks. Well, the public loved these abominable snowman tales, and what the expedition did was agree to look into these stories, basically as a way to raise funds and awareness for the project. The press often focused on the Yeti angle because it sold magazines and newspapers, but it was a lark to many of the expedition members. Still, Hillary and his team would visit some monasteries and villages and collect stories. And most importantly, they would look at reputed samples of Yeti fur or skin. These were often big deals to the local people, almost like relics. Well, as you can guess, these turned out to be the remains of bears, goats, red pandas, and even a human hand. Otherwise, cameras and tripwires and so forth were set up to try to catch visual evidence of the Yeti, but no luck. The Great Yeti Hunt would be a big bust, just as Hillary had expected. The other thing I want to mention about the expedition was Hillary's decision to make another try at climbing Makalu. Again, things did not go well. Hillary would wake up one day unable to talk. He had suffered a cerebral thrombosis, which is a blood clot of the cerebral vein in the brain. He would have to give up the expedition lead and head down the mountain. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, one of the expedition's climbers, Peter Mulgrew, would later suffer a pulmonary edema, a clot in the lung, while high up on Makalu. It would take five harrowing days to get Mulgrew down the mountain, and he would lose both his feet due to frostbite in the process. The Silver Hut expedition would effectively end Hillary's career as a high-altitude climber. He simply could not operate at extreme altitudes without health issues. Now, the Silver Hut expedition would open the eyes of Ed Hillary and his wife Louise to the struggles of the Nepali people. And that would mean a new challenge, which was the creation and nurturing of the Himalayan Trust, a nonprofit charity aimed at improving the health, education, and general welfare of the native people of the Everest region of Nepal. The trust began as a desire to build a single school and would grow to include hospitals, health clinics, and public works throughout the region. The trust would go on to build 26 schools and raise millions of dollars from all over the world. Many of Hillary's old climbing associates would help fundraise and promote the organization. 
The trust still exists today and has expanded its work to include water and sanitation projects and aiding local communities in need, such as after the 2015 earthquake that devastated the region. Hillary's son, Peter Hillary, is the current board chair of the Himalayan Trust, and Hillary's grandson, George, is on the board as well. Hillary's daughter, Sarah, has also been involved extensively with the charity. Now, the Himalayan Trust would be Ed Hillary's passion project for the rest of his life, but his adventurous spirit was never dulled. In fact, Ed's daughter, Sarah, said, quote, adventure was compulsory, end quote, growing up in the Hillary family. However, Ed Hillary would suffer a terrible tragedy in 1975 when his wife Louise and 16-year-old daughter Belinda were killed in a plane crash near Kathmandu. Their deaths would be devastating for Hillary and his family. Never a demonstrative man, Ed Hillary struggled to connect with his surviving children at this time. This would lead to drinking and depression. But Hillary would rebound in time. In 1977, he would lead a jet boat expedition up the Ganges River to its source, and in 1985, he accompanied American astronaut Neil Armstrong on a flight to the North Pole. There, Armstrong would land their small twin-engine plane, and Hillary would become the first person in the world to stand atop Everest and both poles. That feat is now called the Three Poles Challenge. In the same year, Hillary was appointed New Zealand's ambassador to India and Nepal, a post he would hold for four years. Ed Hillary would remarry in 1989 to June Mulgrew, the widow of Peter Mulgrew, the guy who had nearly died on Makalu back in 1961. They would remain married until his death. Hillary would stay active with charity work, writing and speaking for the rest of his life. Then, on June 11, 2008, he would die of heart failure in Auckland, New Zealand. He was 88 years old. A state funeral would follow. Ed Hillary had led an extraordinary life. If he had just climbed Everest, he would hold a place in history. But everything else he did only enhanced his legend, especially his charity work, which was something near and dear to his heart and to the hearts of his family, and still is today. The compassion and effort Hillary poured into the Himalayan Trust has made him beloved in Nepal. It is a pretty amazing legacy. So how else is Edmund Hillary remembered and honored? Well, there's the whole knighthood thing, which is pretty amazing. But beyond that, the number of awards he has received is so numerous, I can't even list them. Heck, there is even an award named after Hillary. You know you've done pretty good when they start naming awards after you. Here are some of the other fun ways Hillary has been remembered. He was put on New Zealand's $5 note. He's on stamps. And all over the world, there are buildings and streets and schools named after him. And there are even statues of the guy. The south ridge of Mount Cook, also called Orokni, New Zealand's highest mountain, was renamed Hillary Ridge in 2011. Hillary and three other climbers were the first party to successfully climb the ridge back in 1948. Another fun fact is that there is a mountain range named after Hillary on Pluto. Finally, in 1999, Time magazine named Hillary one of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. Beyond all of his individual accomplishments, Hillary has two surviving children and at least five grandchildren. His son, Peter, would become an accomplished climber and go on to summit Everest twice, making Ed and Peter the first father and son to reach the top of the world. Hillary's daughter, Sarah, would study art history and go on to become a leader in painting conservation and restoration in New Zealand. She never was interested in climbing, but it's an ultra-marathon runner. So that is it for Edmund Hillary, a pretty amazing story. He is arguably the most famous and celebrated New Zealander in history. Let's move on to Tenzing Norgay. The life of Tenzing Norgay is, I don't think, as simple as Hillary's. Hillary had an established structure that was, in a lot of ways, predictable. But I think that the fame that was thrust on Tenzing was very different, and probably more difficult to manage, than what Hillary went through. Let me explain. 
1953, India was still a young nation, and there was a national awakening throughout Asia at this time as well. And when Tenzing was thrust into the spotlight, everyone wanted a piece of him. Nepal wanted Tenzing, but so did India. And from the very moment he walked down off of Everest, there would be people poking and prodding at Tenzing. Nepal and India and Asia wanted heroes of their own, and thus Tenzing would have to make a choice, Nepal or India. He would choose the latter. India was where he had spent his entire adult life. His children had been born and raised there, and he now had deep roots in the community. His decision to cast his lot with India made some resent him, saying he had abandoned Nepal and the Sherpas. The difficult thing is that Tenzing was never going to satisfy everyone, and as a man sensitive to criticism, it would always gnaw at him. Still, Tenzing was wildly popular at this time. He even had offers to be in the movies. So what should he do? Well, for that, he would turn to his new friend, Indian Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. Nehru was also known as Pandit Nehru. Tenzing would say of him, quote, From the very first, Pandit was like a father to me, end quote. It was an important relationship in many ways for Tenzing. Nehru offered him a trusted figure in a world that Tenzing just didn't understand very well. Tenzing did not have much of an education, he could not read or write, and he and his family, up to the Everest expedition, had lived in a small apartment and lived day to day. Just like most people, Tenzing very much wanted financial security and a good future for his family, but no one in his circle of friends or family actually knew much about what it meant to be upper or even middle class. Speaking about Tenzing at this time, Ed Hillary would say this, quote, In the ways of the world, he was a rather simple soul. He liked the idea of being well-to-do, but he really didn't know how to go about doing it, end quote. Nehru would solve many of these problems. He would help Tenzing negotiate the complex world of politics and business, and he would protect him from unscrupulous individuals who wanted to take advantage of Tenzing's newfound fame. And best of all, Nehru never patronized Tenzing. Tenzing knew immediately when he was being patronized, as he had dealt with it all of his life, and that was never the case with the Indian politician. Nehru was a friend and a mentor. He would even give Tenzing some of his designer suits, as the two men were about the same size, and thus when Tenzing went to London, he would look incredibly sharp. As for Nehru, he understood Tenzing was a powerful symbol, a man born in poverty and colonialism who had risen to be the best in the world. That was a great story, and Nehru wanted to make sure Tenzing succeeded in the coming years. I should stress that this wasn't a situation where Nehru was simply exploiting Tenzing. The two men generally liked and admired one another. Whenever Tenzing and his family came to Delhi, they would stay with the Prime Minister. So after the excitement of the climb settled, Tenzing would find himself involved in two projects. The first was his autobiography. It took some time, but his publisher would ultimately settle on James Ramsey Ullman, a popular novelist and a mountaineering enthusiast, to write the book with Tenzing. The book would be called Tiger of the Snows, but is often found as Man of Everest. It was a good success and provided Tenzing with the first serious money he had ever earned. The second big project would be the creation of the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute in Darjeeling by Prime Minister Nehru. Nehru and Tenzing had a vision of a school to introduce Indians not just to climbing, but to geography, biology, geology, and more. Tenzing would be the director of field training for the institute and the star power it needed to get supporters. The Himalayan Mountaineering Institute, or HMI, would provide Tenzing, for the first time in his life, with good, steady income. He would work for HMI for 23 years, helping train over 4,000 students in that time. Seven of those students would go on to climb Everest. With the help of Nehru, Tenzing got his first home in Darjeeling, and it would, for many years, be bustling with people, as he and his wife would take in the four children of Tenzing's sister when she passed away in 1956. 
So with the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute, Tenzing would stay busy as a teacher and mentor to a new generation of climbers. He would travel frequently and do some climbing and even toy with leading some bigger expeditions, but for the most part, his life as a high-altitude climber was done after Everest. All of this made Tenzing a well-off man, but by no means rich. With so many people relying on him, he was always concerned about his finances. Now, the 1960s would bring something new to Tenzing's life, scandal. In 1961, Tenzing would begin a relationship with a 21-year-old woman named Daku. She would get pregnant and they would marry. A son, Norbu, would be born the next year. Now, in case you are wondering, Tenzing's wife, Ang Lamu, was still alive. But polygamy was an accepted custom amongst the Sherpa people. However, it was not looked upon favorably in India. That, plus the age difference between the two, Tenzing would have been 47, made for a scandal in some circles. The truth is that Tenzing's marriage to Ang Lamu had very much been a marriage of convenience, and he had had relationships with other women. But Daku was different, and Tenzing wanted her as his wife. In the end, Ang Lamu accepted Daku into the family, but she was humiliated by it all. She had, after all, supported Tenzing in difficult times and raised his girls as her own. By the way, Tenzing's daughters, now adults, were not happy about the marriage either. Sadly, Ang Lamu would get sick at this same time, and she would die of lung cancer in 1964. Tenzing's marriage would, in addition to Norbu, bring him and Daku three more children. Two boys, Jamlin and Dami, and a girl, Deki. Tenzing would continue to work at the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute into the 1970s, but his work at HMI would leave him less and less fulfilled, and in 1977, he would leave the Institute. Now, even before departing HMI, Tenzing had been getting involved in the burgeoning adventure travel industry. This industry was tailored to wealthy people who were looking to go, in comfort, to exotic places such as Antarctica, the Galapagos, and the Himalayas. These tours employed men like Tenzing and Ed Hillary as the celebrity hook. They'd shake hands, have photos taken, that sort of stuff. In 1978, Tenzing even started his own company called Tenzing Norgay Adventures, which still exists today and is run by his son, Jamling. No matter, this would invigorate Tenzing, who was now in his 60s, at least for a time. He made decent money, got to travel all over the world, and found an adoring audience at each stop. But by the 1980s, the fun of all this would begin to wane. Tenzing's marriage was suffering as his wife traveled often and was rarely in Darjeeling. Two of his children had gone to the United States for college, and the other two were in boarding school. He had a big, empty home, and not unlike Ed Hillary, he began to drink and suffered from depression. Speaking of Hillary, it is interesting to find that the two men, who were so linked together, had never actually been friends. But that changed in these later years, as the two crossed paths over and over. And then, when Hillary became New Zealand's ambassador to India and Nepal, they saw each other often. In 1985, Tenzing's health would begin to fade and then on May 9, 1986, he would suffer a fatal brain hemorrhage. Tenzing Norgay was dead at the age of 71. Ed Hillary would be amongst those who would come to the funeral, which included a mile-long procession through the streets of Darjeeling. Tenzing Norgay, just like Ed Hillary, had led an extraordinary life. And it wasn't just about climbing Everest. He had helped start the Himalayan Mountaineering Institute, training thousands of young people. He had actively supported charities to help aging Sherpas in Darjeeling, and more than anything, he had given a face and a voice to the Sherpa community, making them perhaps the most famous mountain people in the world. Pretty amazing stuff. Tenzing would be remembered in so many ways. He had lots and lots of awards and honors, although no knighthood, which still rankles his family and friends. There are places named after him, statues, all that sort of stuff. 
And like Hillary, there's an award named after Tenzing, as well as a mountain range on Pluto. Not so shabby for the son of a yak herder. Tenzing Norgate would have seven children and countless grandchildren. His son Jamling would climb Everest in 1996, and one of his grandchildren, Tashi Tenzing, would reach the top of the Great Peak as well. Jamling, by the way, is a celebrated climber and author. Tenzing's daughter, Deki, would marry an American lawyer, Clark Trainer, and their son, Tenzing Norgate Trainer, is a successful young actor, most famous for his role on Disney's Live and Maddie. In the end, Tenzing Norgate is remembered as the most famous Sherpa in history, and his legacy is with those Sherpas who still operate in the Himalayas to this day. So that is it for the lives of Tenzing and Hillary. I can't stress to you that there is so much more about these two men, and if you are interested in learning more, just do some searches online and find a book or two. I want to mention that I find Hillary's books kind of dry. I'd focus on a good biography. Tenzing's autobiography is okay, but was written back in 1955. I look for a biography on him as well. I have put a few suggestions for both on our website, explorerspodcast.com. And with that, I want to wrap up the series with a few comments about the expedition and the secret star of our series, Everest, a.k.a. Chamaluma. I call Everest the secret star because I really see the Mallory series and the Hillary slash Tenzing series as one long program with Mount Everest the overarching star. So I'll start by saying that Everest was, perhaps, the last epic place to be reached on this earth. And I stress on this earth as there are many places we as humans have to explore outside this planet. But Everest was a place that was, and still is, easy for people to identify. The North Pole, the South Pole, the highest point in the world. People can grasp that, see photos of it, find it on a map. Sure, there are other places, great ocean trenches, jungle valleys, or wherever. But they don't fire the imagination like the highest place on Earth. And thus, when Hillary and Tenzing reached the top of Everest, it sort of capped the great era of exploration on this planet. There are no more oceans or continents to be discovered, no more great rivers to map, no more epic places to be found. Instead, much of what happens now is something is done differently, or at a different time, or whatever. Cross the Arctic solo. Climb to the top of a mountain without oxygen. Row across an ocean in a boat made of Legos. Okay, that last one isn't real, or at least that I know of, but you get the point. Anyhow, that aside, for Everest, the ascent of Edmund Hillary in Tenzing Norgay in 1953 marked a new beginning. It would open up the mountain to more climbers and mountaineers. Here are a few big moments about the Great Mountain I want to note. In 1960, a group of Chinese climbers, Wang Fuzhao, Gang Po, and Qi Yin Hua, would complete the first ascent from the north side. Japanese mountaineer Yonko Ishibashi would be the first woman to climb Everest, reaching the summit in 1975. In 1978, Franz Oberg would be the first to solo ascent the mountain. That same year, Reinhold Meisner and Peter Habler would be the first men to climb to the top of Everest without supplemental oxygen. Messner would also make the first solo ascent without oxygen two years later. I can go on and on with these. As of 2010, more than 5,100 people have reached the top of Everest, the ages ranging from 13 to 80. I also want to note that, going back to the seven porters being led by Mallory up to the North Call in 1922, more than 300 men and women have died on Everest. Even with all the safety measures, it is still a very dangerous ascent. Altitude sickness, falls, avalanches, they can be deadly. Fifteen Sherpas would die in an avalanche in the Kumbu Icefall in 2014, and 17 climbers died when an avalanche struck base camp following the April 2015 earthquake. Today, the climbing of Everest is an industry. We've all probably seen the photos of lines of people stretching up Everest, waiting for their chance at the top. Some argue that the almost factory line approach takes away much of the allure of Everest. 
The difficult areas have ropes and ladders, camps and supplies are all set up, that sort of thing. But those who have reached the top probably disagree. I mean, the idea of standing on top of the world is a pretty amazing thing. And the dangers, as we have noted, are still very real. By the way, regarding the climb today, the famed Hillary Step, the last great challenge in reaching the top of the mountain, well, for a long time there was a ladder set up there. However, after the 2015 earthquake in the Himalayas, the famed rock face was at least partially wiped out. Some say it's only about 12 to 15 feet high now, or about 4 meters. And due to the diminished height, more snow accumulates around it, making it mostly a non-factor on the climb. The last thing I want to mention is that the ascent of Everest signaled the continuing growth of climbing as a sport all over the world. And not just high-altitude climbing, but climbing in general. As an industry, it has grown leaps and bounds. Much of this is tied to that incredible climb back in 1953. Just as Mallory and that era of mountaineers inspired a new generation of climbers, Tenzing and Hillary did the same thing. And not just in England or America or Europe, but throughout the world. So there you go. It's time to bring this beast to an end. When I started these Everest stories, I never imagined that they would take up nine long episodes. It has been pretty amazing. These were stories I knew about, but not the details, and certainly not about the lives of the people involved. I think it is fitting that it was Tenzing and Hillary who made the ultimate climb. They were both unlikely heroes. They were from very different worlds, but were similar in so many ways. And today they are, pretty much without question, the two most famous mountaineers in the history of the world. That is a heck of a legacy. So that is it. I hope you have enjoyed this series on Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay and the Conquest of Everest. Thank you for joining me on this great journey. Please take care, and I will see you next time. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.